Welcome to my podcast, Patient First. I'm Dr. Naveen Samaya. I'm an Australian registered specialist plastic surgeon with 17 years of surgical experience. As the scientific convener of the Non-Surgical Symposium and a former president of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, my goal is to help patients navigate the complex world of both surgical and non-surgical aesthetics, but by understanding what is evidence and what is not. This, I hope, is going to help them realize their aesthetic goals safely and in a manner consistent with good clinical practice. This podcast is an extension of that legacy. My aim is to empower you to make the most educated decisions about your choices concerning your face and body aesthetics and your safety. Each episode, I will be bringing to you cutting-edge science and exploring surgical procedures in a modern, evidence-based approach to aesthetics. Plus, I will be inviting some esteemed guests in my podcast in the future to offer new perspectives. Tune in each week as together we explore the next frontier of surgical and non-surgical aesthetics. Welcome back to the podcast, Patient First. I am Dr. Naveen Samaya, your host. I am an Australian-trained specialist plastic surgeon, and in this episode, I will take you through the fascinating world of common plastic surgical myths. I'm about to debunk common misconceptions that has shrouded our specialty for too long. So whether you're a seasoned expert or just curious about plastic surgery, we have you covered. Get ready to be enlightened and empowered with the truth, which is based on the science behind plastic surgery and using these scientific data, I will be happy to debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions. In the interest of full disclosure mandated by the Australian health regulators, my name is Dr. Naveen Samaya. I am a registered medical practitioner and specialist plastic surgeon. I am registered as a specialist in surgery and my specialty field of practice is plastic surgery. My APRA registration number is MED 000 I wish to advise listeners that information provided in this podcast is of general in nature and does not constitute formal medical advice. Any surgical or invasive procedure does carry risks and it is advised that you seek a second opinion from an appropriately qualified health practitioner. Results do vary from patient to patient and results experienced by one need not necessarily translate to results experienced by another person. With that behind us, let's dive deep down into busting some of the misconceptions and myths in plastic surgery. Myths in plastic surgery or misconceptions is the equivalent of fake news. It allows people to make wrong choices, bad decisions, which is really not in their favor. So I think when it comes to plastic surgery, it is very important that the information that is available is authentic, transparent, and truthful. Both the practitioner who advertises or markets himself or herself has an obligation and an ethical one indeed to ensure that the information put out is clear, not confusing, transparent, accurate and nothing but the truth. In other words, asking a surgeon to be honest shouldn't be that hard. If patients make decisions which are based on false or misleading information, we do not see this going very well. Often we found patients harmed in the course of having surgery. The results may be substandard. This not only will give them some complications 
if they're unlucky or worse, maybe life-altering. So in the interest of patient safety, I think debunking myths are critical and important. So myth number one, all surgeons are the same. This is probably the most important myth I am going to bust. And this is actually very important in the context of patients' decision-making and to have a patient-friendly outcome with plastic surgery. Now, it's very important to realize that the 1st of July, 2023, new regulations came into the sphere of cosmetic surgery practice in Australia. And one of the key components of that of those regulations were to ensure that people who are practicing cosmetic surgery maintained a level of transparency, honesty, and truthfulness in their titles. In other words, title transparency became mandatory after the 1st of July, 2023. Now, this is an important step, and I'll come back to that in a second. Now, all surgeons are trained reasonably well. Surgery is a very diverse field with multiple speciality. Multiple surgeons have different skill sets and areas of expertise that leads to differences in approach, differences in surgical treatments, and of course, difference in outcomes. So in terms of looking at a surgeon, some of the core credentials of a surgeon would be the surgical training and the statutory registration with the National Authority of uh, Medicine or Medical Practitioners. In this case, in Australia, it is AHPRA, also known as APRA. Now, there's a comprehensive expertise comes with every surgical discipline, and surgeons should be well known for a good track record on patient safety and evidence and ethical-based practice. The surgeon should have expertise in treating complex cases and a commitment to ongoing learning. This is very important because your training as a surgeon will last for five to six years, maybe seven years, probably a bit more. But surgeons practice or clinical practice where the surgeon will treat patients lasts for a good 35 years. Now, all important medical changes in the next, in the last, in the second 35 years have to be learned by the surgeon. And this is only possible if you're committed to a continuous learning culture. It's very important. And this is what makes a surgeon very good, able to bring in world's best practice, evidence-based, and bring the latest and the best practice to his or her patients. The surgeon should also have a very patient-friendly, patient-centric practice and should also have a very comprehensive aftercare plan. These are the basic requisites for a good surgical specialist. Now, prior to 1st of July, 2023, anyone and everyone could use a title surgeon. There was no restriction. So if you are a newly qualified medical graduate, with no more than an undergraduate medical degree, you could happily use the title surgeon with no repercussions. Thankfully, recent changes to the law have made sure that the title surgeon is protected and can only be used by three categories of specialists. Number one, registered specialist surgeons. Number two, registered specialist ophthalmologists. And number three, registered specialist gynecologists. The other important title transparency move that's happened is the title plastic surgeon can only be used by somebody who is registered in the recognized specialty of plastic surgery. Previously, people who are not recognized as not registered in the recognized specialty of plastic surgery would continue to appropriate the title plastic surgeon and use it. And after the 1st of July, that practice thankfully has come to a halt. As a consequence, the marketplace of cosmetic surgery from the consumer's perspective is clearer, the fog has lifted, it is more transparent, and all surgeons who practice cosmetic surgery have to display in all the communications their core registration status, 
whether they have specialist registration status, their area of expertise, and the specialty field of practice. Now, this level of transparency was unheard of. It is not even applicable in any other jurisdiction in the world. So in some ways, Australia First has had a major impact to improve the transparency and thereby translate into better patient outcomes because it empowers the consumer and the patient to make a very informed choice. This is not only important for the safety of the patient, it is also a respect for the patient's autonomy. The patient is allowed, should be entitled to make a decision based on accurate information, not misleading titles. Myth number two, the second common myth that I would like to address is a breast implant is a one-off surgery and will last for a lifetime. Now, this is a very important myth to address because it's not very clear about the information around this topic. Patients frequently ask me this question every time they are considering a breast augmentation or augmentation mammoplasty. And there are certain facts that we should discuss to see if this fact is true or false. The first is the age at which you undergo a breast augmentation or augmentation mammoplasty is a static state where you'll have certain tissue characteristics, certain implant characteristics, and the matching of the tissue characteristics to implant characteristics will then allow you to translate into a better aesthetic outcome. But as time goes by, there are two levels of changes that occur independent of each other. Number one, the breast implant itself will undergo changes. And the common changes are the breast implant is subject to wear and tear. So it can potentially rupture, can form what is known as a capsular contracture, can cause a fluid around an implant and independently result in aesthetic asymmetries or aesthetic concerns for the patients. And in some cases could be symptomatic. The body tissues around the breast, including the muscle, the fat, the skin, the chest wall, and all the ligaments that support the breast and the breast implant over time will undergo some changes. Now, from the age of 20, if you say, pick an age of 20 and say, let's evaluate the soft tissue changes over the next 30 years till the age of 50, you'll go through pregnancy or pregnancies. You'll end up having some weight loss or weight gain. You will chronologically age with time and your tissues, individual tissues will also age. All those features will impact your breast aesthetics independent of the implant. So the question is, patients, you cannot expect the aesthetic outcome that was given to you or provided to you at 20 to last for 25 or 30 years. It is logical and it is natural to expect some change. So how do patients deal with it? Their life changes. Patients may say, look, I like my implant taken off completely, also known as a breast explantation and nothing back to be put back. The other option is I would like to go a smaller size because as time goes by, I've realized the soft tissue is not that strong enough. And it's the same logic as when you go into an elevator, you will find a limit of a weight that tells you a safety level to imply that, yes, this lift can withstand 1,000 kilos, no more. And your body tissues are very similar in nature too. So patients will choose to either explant completely, explant or replace with a smaller implant and downsize them, or consider having an implant removal and address the soft tissues independently by means of a lift. So to summarize the whole thing, a breast implant is not a one-off procedure. I think it is reasonable to expect changes independently in the breast implant and also changes in the soft tissues that support the breast implant. So at some stage, you will need to consider some sort of modification as appropriate. Now, critically, a patient 
first or a patient-centric practice would involve regular follow-up for your duration of your implant. Now, that is very important because changes don't happen with warning. Changes happen without warning. Sometimes you'll have subclinical changes that do not cause any symptoms or signs. So an annual clinical checkup or an annual ultrasound to see the status of the implant or the presence of fluid around the implant or scarring or rupture and also reliant on patient reported outcomes. If the patient feels that I've got some funny sensation, if the patient reports that I've got some tenderness or pain, if the patient reports that I find it is asymmetrical, I, one day I walk up to find my left side is bigger or the right side is bigger. These are all patient reported outcome measures that this practitioner has to take into account and investigate it thoroughly and come to a conclusion of repeat observations or escalate to the next level of intervention. These are important practices and your specialist plastic surgeon would be quite capable of doing this as a part of a routine patient-centric practice. With a lot of information around uh, available to consumers on two new entities known as Breast Implant Illness, BII, and Breast Implant Associated, ALCL, a lot of patients are aware of it. It doesn't occur in everybody, but if it does occur and you have the symptoms, we rec I recommend you can contact your plastic surgeon who has performed the first surgery. And in the context of that, we're finding that a lot more patients now are opting to have the breast implants removed and not worry about having a replacement. So in summary, breast implant is not a one-off procedure. Uh, so that is a myth that has been debunked based on uh, prevailing scientific evidence and literature support. Myth number three is it is possible to have scarless plastic surgery. Now, this is a play on the words and it is more a marketing term than a term that is backed by science or scientific evidence. A less scar has been cleverly twisted to make it scarless. So the impact of this, it is seen as a procedure that has very little downsides. In other words, people are generally concerned about the scar, especially if it's in a visible part of your face. But there is no such thing as surgery without a scar because the current scientific data does not support it. There is no intervention to either prevent a scar or modify the scar in such a way that it disappears completely. The fundamental reason is a scar is an essential process of healing. And whether you scratch your skin, cut your skin, traumatize your skin in some way that is a natural response that facilitates healing. The final product or the final outcome of the healing process is what is called as a scar. So plastic surgeons generally are very skilled in understanding the impact of the scar and have techniques to minimize that scar formation. So to make it sound very simple, there are three major components that influence your scar. There is a genetic component that makes you prone to scars or not prone to scars. And that's a factor that should be addressed. So certain skin types, especially skin types of a darker pigment, will scar worse than someone who does not have a huge amount of pigment in your skin. In other words, a Northern European type skin will scar differently to an Asian skin. And this inherent genetic mediated risk is backed by science and every specialist plastic surgeon will be aware of it. The other risk is based on the location of the procedure. So for example, if you look at a scar on the eyelid, the scar on the face, the scar on the chest, 
each one will heal differently and scar differently and the resulting scar will be visibly different because the tissue characteristics of the chest skin is different to that of the eyelid. The common example where we can see this very clear distinction between a good scar and a not so good scar is in the operation called ridgedectomy, also called the facelift, where there's the scar that goes in front of the ear and then turns the corner and goes behind the ear to a certain degree. Now, the scar that is in front of the ear will heal very well, will scar, yes, but if a plastic surgeon has made the attempt to cleverly camouflage the scar in the crease lines and ensure that the contours and the shadows don't highlight the scar, the scar is virtually invisible to the common eye. But if you go closely and look at it, you can see the scar. However, the scar that is behind the ear will behave totally differently to the scar that is in front of the ear for multiple reasons. And the commonest one is the pull of the neck and the type of the skin in that area will influence how the scar is. So this is a very good example of ensuring that the location-specific scar will influence the final outcome. The third, second thing of the scar is what does the plastic surgeon do while he or she is operating. Plastic surgeons have specialized in ensuring that the wound healing is the best possible it's going to be before they embark on surgery. So any kind of risk factors that can compromise wound healing will be identified, optimized, so that healing will progress very well and the resulting scar will be its best it's ever going to be. And even the method of designing the incision, planning the incision, the type of cut that is done, the type of meticulous tissue handling, the gentle handling of tissues, not traumatizing the tissues, making sure all the blood vessels are properly, accurately coagulated with the precise amount of energy. As a lot of technical precision goes into handling wounds to make sure that the wounds heal perfectly, choice of sutures, number of layers of stitching, the type of sutures that can stay, the judgment that what sutures to be taken out, what should be left behind, all those small things cumulatively add up to a better healing process and a better scar indeed. And the aftercare is just as important. And this is where the patient develops what we call as a shared care model, where the surgeon will instruct the patients to recommend multiple things to look after the wound to ensure its healing is progressing well and the resulting scarring is good. And it's very important as a patient to comply with that and uh, get the best resulting scar. So avoiding infection, avoiding irritation, making sure you have sun protection for the scar, making sure you've got products that optimize your scars appearance, mainly silicon-based products, either in the form of a gel or a tape. And the different products there, but they all rely on patient compliance. It is the consistency post-surgery that will give you a better scar. And also an understanding of the natural history of the scar formation post-surgery. Unfortunately, it takes a long time for the scar to grow, mature, fade away. It is like four seasons that the scar has to go through. It's about 12-month process at the end of which you'll have a fairly decent scar that is flat, blends with the skin color, not raised, not pigmented, does not look like a hypertrophic or a thickened scar, and could be easily camouflaged with a bit of topical foundation. So is there something like scarless surgery? The answer is no, that is a myth. Myth number four is having surgery overseas will save you money. 
the cost of the procedure or the payment to the surgical operation if it's done overseas will save you money. But there are other several important factors to consider and the cost of the surgical procedure is just one aspect of the entire package of the surgical journey. Let's explore them one by one. Quality and safety is the first and the most important prerequisite for successful and safe surgery. There is, should be a critical consideration of quality and safety in every surgical operation. It's important that you research the qualifications and credentials of the surgeon who's overseas, the hospital, the facility, the post-op care, and also have to ensure that the post-op facility is accredited and the surgeon is a registered specialist, not somebody who is not a registered specialist. Overseas surgery has a phenomenon that has been publicized widely. It is a term called ghosting. In other words, you go and see a surgeon and whom you think is the most credentialed surgeon, the most trustworthy surgeon. But because of cultural and language barriers, the surgeon is not the same person who does the operation. The operation is usually performed by a different person who we haven't really met. And this is a term called ghosting. That's something everyone has to be very, very aware of because there's no recourse to find out if that practice is rampant in that place. And there's no way you'll know if that is a common practice. The second important thing of overseas surgery, which impacts on the cost, is your communications before, during, and after the surgery. This is very important because you don't want to be critical information to be missed uh, during the phase of communication that has a material impact on your outcomes. Say, for example, assessment of risk of wound healing of your general health are very important considerations that you have to have conveyed to your treating surgeon. And there may be some language barriers. We're not saying there is, but uh, something for you to be aware of. Medical standards in different countries are different. For example, plastic surgical training is not standardized globally. So country A may have a training program of two and a half years. Country B may have a training program of five years. Country C may have a training program of six years. The spectrum of exposure to different types of plastic surgery vary from country to country. And this is not uh, common knowledge, neither it is standardized. So this is something to be aware of. There are certain cultural and environmental effects that you need to take into effect. Because for example, if you have surgery in a place that has a tropical weather condition compared to a temperate weather condition, you can expect the microorganisms in that environment, the bugs and the other things that live are of a different nature because a bug that tolerates temperature of 35 degrees may not be able to survive in a temperature of 10 degrees. So the microbiological environment is significantly different. And if you've never been exposed to that environment, your risk of catching an infection is quite high. The second important thing in this scenario we need to discuss is the fact of drug-resistant bacteria that is rampant globally as a process, as a consequence of indiscriminate use of antibiotics. Now, certain countries have got a very strict policy of how antibiotics can be prescribed and used. And Australia is a very good example of a very low risk of drug-resistant bacteria in Australia, but the same thing cannot be said for overseas jurisdictions. And this is an important consideration because if you do pick up a that is antibiotic resistant, then it takes a lot of time, effort to cure it. But and during the process, you may have to have extensive therapy, intensive therapy, as well as if the risks are quite high if you end up uh, getting infection with one of those drug-resistant bacteria. Recovery after surgery is important consideration if you're having an overseas uh, location for surgery because post-operative care is very important. Complications in surgery occur due to three reasons. One is anesthetic complications and 
operative complications occur immediately after surgery. So that will happen within the first 24 to 36 hours. And any hospital, any medical facility will be happy to, will be capable of addressing them. But the complications that follow as a consequence of the aesthetic outcomes and the healing process don't happen in the first 24-48 hours. They happen a week later sometimes, maybe a month later, three months later, six months later, eight months later. So how do you address those if you are back home after your surgery in overseas is something that you need to factor in. Who will see you? Will they see you? Do you have to fly back to the overseas location to have it fixed? So while the cost of the surgical procedure is definitely cheaper. The cumulative cost of everything else may make it a bit more expensive, considering the fact that you may have to travel there with another person and you may have to stay there for a week or two before you can head back home to Australia. So in summary, is it a myth? The answer is it is a myth. The reality is a lot different. There's more than one aspect to factor in. And we advise every patient who make that research before you make the decision to have surgery overseas. And I commonly get asked that topic from patients who come and see me. Uh, sometimes they are looking at an opinion. Sometimes they just have a casual conversation. And this is the standard thing I tell everybody. You just need to be careful, do your research, and then see if it is worth it. Price or cost is only a, an issue in the absence of value is a very well-known saying. So that factors in very well into cosmetic surgery overseas. The next myth I'm going to address is, does the doctor know best in this day and age? While the traditional role of the doctor in medicine is very critical and crucial, modern healthcare recognizes that the doctor-patient relationship is a partnership, collaborative care with both parties working together to achieve the best possible outcome. So in this day and age, the concept of doctor knows best has evolved and continues to evolve as we make technological progresses. And the doctor-patient relationship is characterized by shared decision-making and a patient-centered approach, which not only respects the doctor's viewpoint, but also the patient's autonomy. Ultimately, the best decisions are made with the patient's values, preferences, circumstances, and the doctor supporting the patient's autonomy and the right to choose. The next myth that I'm going to address is one that I get asked very frequently. Does liposuction address cellulite? Now, first and foremost, we need to define and understand what is cellulite. We all know cellulite is the appearance of the skin and the fat in certain parts of the thigh, upper buttock and uh, um, areas um, that commonly are seen in women of different age groups and with no known cause. So the underlying pathophysiology of cellulite is still being understood. It is a structural problem. Although it appears like there is fat in that area and an excess amount of fat, it is actually made up of four to five components that contribute towards cellulite. Now, let's address the first five uh, components. The first thing is there is a certain amount of excess fat being produced in this area, not uniform, but more Patchy. The second thing that happens is there are multiple fibrous septa or, or strands of fibrous tissue that pull the skin down very much like guy ropes in a tent. Now, what happens is these are not uniform forces pulling the skin down, but all pegged at different points in the skin. So it is a bit like having a big pot belly and tightening the belt significantly tighter. So you're going to have a big bulge where the belt has not come in and the part where the belt is actually tightened, which corresponds to the septum in cellulite, gets depressed. 
and kind of held down a little bit. So that creates that uneven contour. The third thing is if you have a 20-year-old person who has cellulite and a 45-year-old person who has cellulite, you will notice the single most important change that is in the skin. The skin becomes loose. It doesn't become tight as you get older. It becomes looser as you get older, becomes more floppier and hence very noticeable. The Fourth important thing is there are areas of fatty bulges and the areas of fatty depressions. So it is not a uniform, it's more like a wave pattern that adds to the complexity because we all know in uh, simple objects, the more convex you have in an area of the body, the more light it will reflect, the more concave you are, it will create a shadow. So between uneven contours, you'll have light shadow, which makes that uneven tone very unsettling for a lot of patients. Now, there is a school of thought that has been supported by scientific literature to show that there is a significant amount of lymphatic dysfunction that somehow contributes to cellulite. We do not know if the lymphatic function came first or did it come as a consequence of the cellulite or the fat deposition. But nevertheless, if you indulge in lymphatic massage, whether it is a manual lymphatic drainage methods or a mechanical lymphatic drainage methods, such as a, the LX9 pump or endomology, people have reported good outcomes of improving the appearance of, of, of cellulite. So the targeted treatment uh, will depend on what the cause is. Is there a genetic component to cellulite? They have tried to study uh, 25 genotypes and gene patterns and found that they could identify two genes that were responsible and were kind of linked to cellulite. And uh, it is called as the ACE gene, A-C-E gene, and the HIFIA, H-I-F-I-A gene, uh, responsible for cellulite. But I think in the future, there may be gene-directed uh, therapies to ensure that this could be addressed. So coming back to treatment of cellulite, liposuction is a treatment option provided it is the dominant uh, feature. The septa that is too tight needs to be addressed by what is called a subsession, but now there are new products that you can inject to release the tension so that the guy ropes that hold down the skin are not pulled on that tightly so it can be released. There are areas of fat deficit that may need to be filled with either fat as a fat transfer procedure or using fillers to fill that to maintain a uniform contour. Now, again, coming back to skin laxity, there are skin tightening devices in the market that are effective, like radio frequency tightening with or without needles that can be used to tighten that. So it needs a specialist to look at it, to identify what are the components of cellulite and which is a dominant component of cellulite and recommend a treatment that includes all these problems being addressed, it is not adequate, not appropriate, and not enough if you just use one modality to treat cellulite and expect results. So to debunk the myth, is liposuction going to fix cellulite? The answer is on its own. The answer is no. It may be used, very useful, effective as a consortium of treatment options, provided the cause has been identified, the the features have been characterized and the specialist directs the care as appropriate. Talking about liposuction, this is another common question I get asked all the time. Will the fat come back? Now, the fat in with the areas of liposuction, let's have a quick look at what happens in liposuction. Let's assume that I'm planning to liposuck your thigh and you also have some fat in your tummy and which we're not going to liposuck. And let's give a number to each of the number of fat cells in the thigh and the tummy. So if your thigh has 1,000 fat cells and your tummy has 1,000 fat cells, when I liposuck the thigh, I will reduce the number of fat cells from 1,000 
to say 200. So at the end of the liposuction procedure, you've got 200 fat cells in your thigh, whereas you still have 1,000 fat cells in your tummy. Now, how do you put on weight and how do you increase size? Each individual fat cell has to expand. When you consume a diet rich in high calories and over three months of a three month period, if you put on say 10 kilos of weight, your individual fat cell, also called as individual adipocytes, will expand and bulge and become bigger. So the thousand fat cells in your tummy still remain thousand, but they are thousand fat adipocytes. Whereas the 200 fat cells in your thigh will still remain at 200, but there are 200 fat adipocytes. Now, if you look at the amount of expansion of the thigh fat cell and the tummy fat cell, they'll expand evenly. But because the tummy has a lot more fat cells, it will look bigger. And that is why the common misconception is that the fat that has been removed from the thigh is now in the tummy. The answer is it is not true because what has happened is a simple physical phenomenon of expansion, which if you lose another 15 kilos of weight, that will shrink and contract. But because the number of cells don't change, the appearance will be proportional to the number of cells that you have. It's a bit like saying that if you have a 200 strong army as opposed to a thousand strong army, one can mount a stronger defense than the other one. And liposuction is very similar to that concept. So fat does not travel from point A to point B. It is the appearance of the size as the girth increases due to the response to high calories is what gives you an impression that the fat that was here is now gone somewhere else. The next myth that I'd like to address is cosmetic surgery has minimal downtime and it could be a lunchtime procedure. This is nothing but pure marketing. We have seen terms like lunchtime facelift, lunchtime lipo. There's nothing like it. Cosmetic surgery is real surgery with real downtime, real risks, real rewards, and a real post-operative phase. As my mentor, Dr. Ford Nahai in Atlanta said, when you see the word cosmetic surgery, I want you to think, remove the word cosmetic and think of surgery. It is still surgery. It has been marketed to trivialize it. It has been marketed to say that you don't need to be a surgeon to perform cosmetic surgery. It has been marketed to seduce and induce patients to make the decision based on little information, which is not backed by science. All plastic surgeons know that for a fact, they never take cosmetic surgery lightly and they don't trivialize the patient's choice, the patient's journey or the aftercare because if you compromise at any point, that is when things go wrong. So it depends on many factors. Downtime depends on many factors. If you have the operation at the age of 20 as opposed to 50, your downtime will be different. It is similar to running a marathon at the age of 20 or running a marathon at the age of 50. The downtime is the recovery will be dramatically different if you do a marathon at 20 versus 45 or 50. So the patient's age is important. The underlying health of the patient is important. And when we talk about health, we talk about, we start talking about a concept called metabolic health. Are all your organs functioning in sync? Are all your biochemical parameters its healthiest area? You are nutritionally optimized. Do you have any allergies that can derail the process? Do you have other comorbidities or illnesses or diseases? And commonly we look at uh, issues with the heart or issues with the lung or diabetes that can impact your healing. So all these things have to be optimized before you can consider surgery to have a small downtime or a low downtime surgery. The other factors 
that also depend on the type of surgery, whether the surgery is half an hour or 45 minutes, so two hours. That makes a big difference to your recovery because physiologically speaking, your surgery is nothing but controlled injury to the body. So the body will respond the way it responds to this injury. So the duration of surgery is important, whether the surgery is combined with something else. If you're performing a surgery that threatens the body, its own survival. In other words, if you open up a chest cavity, you open up the abdominal cavity, you open up the brain cavity, the body's physiological response will be a lot more severe than if you just perform an operation on the skin or the eyelid or the ear, because the body senses this as, okay, not as a high risk compared to everything else. The anesthetic drugs, how you metabolize, how you respond to those drugs will make a big difference to how you recover and impacts the downtime. If the surgery is performed for the first time, or is it a revision surgery, will make a big difference to your tissue trauma, how the tissues respond, how the tissues will scar, and the healing phase. That is why we say that the first time in cosmetic surgery is usually the best time. And making a choice that is not only safe, but effective will get you the best possible outcome. And as we mentioned in the past about the risks of cosmetic tourism, going overseas, risk of infections, risk of poor surgical techniques can all weigh upon your recovery and your um, recovery phase. Post-operative phase is very important to ensure the downtime because if you're compliant and follow medical advice and consistent with the post-operative care, you can assure your downtime is going to be the best possible downtime. Complications do occur. It's a fact of life. And we usually say that complications can occur due to the anesthetic reasons, could the actual operation itself, or could occur due to the post-operative healing phases. Infection, bruising, swelling, scarring can all slow down recovery. So the message that I as a plastic surgeon tell my patients is this has been very clearly thought through, very clearly articulated, very clearly staged for you. We don't bombard you with information all at once. We give you information as and when appropriate to ensure that your compliance is guaranteed because there's nothing like a compliant patient who goes through these like a tick box and the outcome is very controlled and it heals. It is the fundamental respect for your body's healing process that results in a good downtime with minimal complications. So is a plastic surgery has got no downtime? The answer is absolutely not. Plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery is real surgery and it is important to respect that healing phase of your body that goes through and ensure that you are not only compliant, consistent with the care to get you the best possible outcome. The next myth I'm going to address is a myth that is actually quite common and is unfortunately been amplified uh, through the use of social media. I can use cosmetic surgery to look like my favorite celebrity. And this is a very fascinating concept because if you do not indulge in surgery and you perform surgery and look at surgery through the lens of a plastic surgeon, you may think it is possible. The answer is it is not. Cosmetic surgery can definitely help individuals achieve very specific changes to their appearance, changes that have occurred as a part of the aging process, anatomical shifts that could be rectified. But it is important to have realistic expectations when it comes to resembling a particular celebrity. Every single individual is unique with a unique facial feature and altering that is not recommended. It is not ethical. And I don't think a ethical plastic surgeon who has evidence-based clinical practice as his core will entertain that thought for you to make you transform you to somebody else. Now, the other important thing is 
to transform someone to someone else's face will involve significant changes to the bony architecture of the face. In other words, your your appearance of your face is not linked to your skin, so you can't stretch the skin and make you look like somebody else. It has to be a fundamental change to the underlying bony skeleton, which is a high-risk surgery, and no ethical plastic surgeon will offer to do that to you. The third thing is there is a huge ethical dilemma with regards to changing people's faces. And although it might sound simplistic, it is almost your re-engineering or reassigning your facial aesthetic features. And it is important to consider the impact of doing that because once you have gone to that point, you cannot turn back tomorrow and say, I want it all reversed because it is not possible. So that is why as a plastic surgeon, we do not recommend this as an option because it is number one, not the ethical thing to do. Number two, it has implications way and beyond just an average surgical procedure. The impact of this on your life, your livelihood is enormous and not to mention the psychological impact this will have. So the answer, whether You can look like a favorite celebrity, although it is fanciful, it is not a practical one, it is not realistic, and I think we should not be recommending that as any procedure. When I talk about this myth of, can I look like my favorite celebrity? I want to categorically mention a couple of things. Facial feminization surgery is different because they go through a process of um, regulatory regulated assessment, proper screening as appropriate measures have been taken at multiple stages to achieve the final outcome. And that is done with the good intent. The second example is when you have a reconstructive element to a facial trauma patient, whether it is a motorbike accident where the entire face is uh, disfigured, we have an ethical obligation to reconstruct the face. So you do not have a problem where you're trying to electively change that face, which is kind of uh, social media trend-driven or uh, patients' uh, choice-driven. But this is more of a medical necessity that involves reconstructing your face. All of us have now heard about facial transplants, which is an important consideration here, because if you looked at facial transplants, that is a big decision at all levels. So prior to the facial transplants being performed, they had to go through a lot of ethical clearances before that was a norm. And it has been a very successful outcome in those patients and they literally changed their life. Otherwise, patients were having faces that were completely disfigured and not uh, recognizable and which was limiting their function. So facial transplants have been done with good outcomes, but the ethical obligations that both the person, the practitioner, and the team had to fulfill prior to getting the tick of approval to proceed was different. So it's important to consider these are medically necessary operations that can make a difference. And we want to clearly highlight the difference being a social media trend-driven, elective, I want to look like my celebrity kind of plastic surgery. Thank you for joining with me in this podcast, and I hope you found this uh, interesting. I have encountered these myths pretty much on a regular basis throughout my entire career. So I felt it is important that I share these and bust these myths to allow a level of transparency and authenticity and scientific credibility to this information around you so that you could make a decision with confidence that this is real, transparent, and scientifically accurate as opposed to a myth with no backing. Now, this is important 
And in a patient first practice like mine, I think we all have to be transparent and base our decisions on scientific accuracy and authenticity. I hope you found this useful and I look forward to welcoming you to my next episode of the podcast Patient First. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Patient First. I hope you found this podcast useful. Remember, I'm always listening. And if you have any questions you would like me to answer on the show or upcoming episodes, please connect with me via my clinic website. Thank you.